Hi, friends. I'm Logan Clements, one of your co-hosts of the Better Events Podcast. In this week's episode, we are diving into the legal resources that you need as a small business owner. Our guest this week is Lauren Boyd. She's an entrepreneur, attorney, podcast host, speaker, you name it. And she just shares a lot of really key information with you about what you need for contracts. How do we deal with COVID and contracts, especially coming to it from the event perspective? What disclaimers do you need? And just simple places for where you can start, no matter if you're a business owner who's been in business for 5, 10, 20 years, or you're just getting started. It's a really, really valuable lesson. We learned some lessons for the podcast, uh, which you'll get to hear, and we definitely think it's worth the listen. But before we start, I do want to remind you, if you're liking what you're hearing, please consider leaving us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. That just helps us grow the community and have more people find our podcasts like you guys. But without further ado, let's get into the episode. Welcome to the Better Events Podcast. Join two event strategists, Logan Clements and Mary Davidson, who believe we can all create, host, and attend better events. In this podcast, you will learn about event strategy and actions that you can use today as an event host, planner, or manager. Hear directly from the people who are creating innovative and inspiring events today and tomorrow, and grow your business along the way. Now, let's get started, and thanks for listening to the Better Events Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Better Events Podcast. We are, of course, thrilled to have you with us today as well as our awesome guest. And today we're going to be talking about legal resources for small business owners. And we may even throw in a few tips and tricks for you event pros as well. And so we're excited to get into it. And I'm going to pass it on over to Logan, fellow co-host of the podcast, who's going to introduce our guest today. Thanks, Mary. Yeah, we're very enthusiastic, excited. We always say this, but it it's, rings true every time to have our guest, uh, Lauren Boyd. She is an entrepreneur, attorney, podcast host, speaker, and proud mother who's dedicated to helping entrepreneurs gain confidence in their legal foundation. Before venturing out on her own, Lauren was in a predicament many attorneys face. She worked in corporate law, climbing the ladder, negotiating more than $3 billion in international contracts, but she found herself feeling uninspired and burned out. In 2018, Lauren started to scale her own six-figure boutique law firm, Guide My Business, in less than 12 months. Through Guide My Business, Lauren empowers entrepreneurs to build a strong foundation for their businesses through relationship-focused legal advice without relying on fear-based terms. Lauren, you are speaking our language. I'm snapping here. Instead, Lauren comes from a place of empowerment and education. At the heart of all she does, Lauren is driven by her passion for helping entrepreneurs own their brand and their day. Woo. Lauren, welcome to the podcast. And is there anything you want to add to that lovely bio? Well, no, that sounds really fancy. I think we'll just stick with that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, bios always do, but no, I really, I think for me, the reason that I like to add so much context is, you know, I did come from a corporate law background, but I think being a small business owner myself, and I could even, you know, add to that, like coming, you know, from parents that were entrepreneurs I feel like this is like so like home to me and I understand the predicament of exactly what my clients face and how they feel when they're making decisions and the things that keep you up at night. And I think that that makes me a better attorney. Yeah. We're that, that was honestly, that makes me really excited just to talk about everything we're going to talk about today. And, um, Lauren, one of the things we like to kind of mention is why why we asked our guests. And I didn't mention this to you before, but um, I attended, maybe, Logan, tell me if you were there, but I attended a presentation um, that you gave, and I believe it was at a Create and Cultivate event. 
Does that yes. probably sound right? Yeah, yes. I remember it was virtual. It was like last year or something like that. And But I found myself taking so many notes and I felt like that you made legal talk sound like understandable. And I was so I got a lot out of it. And so ever since then, I, you know, Logan and I started the podcast and I thought this would be something cool and beneficial to talk about. And so I'm just really glad you said yes. <laughs> so oh my for- gosh. I love that. Yeah. Super fun. Yeah, um, I remember that event. That was, it was a good event and I feel like we covered so much, but it's always nice to be able to like dive in a little deeper on like a specific industry so that you can feel like you can give like more actionable advice. So I'm so excited to be here. Awesome. Yeah. And so we um, can just jump in with our first question and we are going to, we can take this any direction, but we like to start kind of at the basics. And so we're thinking um, a a phrase that, you know, we understand that you use, so correct us if we're wrong, but is like legally aligned. So can you share with us why listeners should really care about this topic and why they should become legally aligned? Yeah, I think, you know, there's really a mindset shift that comes from having, you know, your ducks in a row, the peace of mind of, you know, a strong foundation. And so we kind of like to say that, you know, we're not running lemonade stands. I'm sure most of us who are listening to this podcast who are crazy enough to start our own businesses probably did things like start lemonade stands when we were younger. But I really do find that going out there, investing in your foundation makes you treat your business decisions differently. There's a really wonderful stat that says businesses that trademark their their brand within the first year of business actually earn three times as much revenue in the first five years than businesses that don't. Now, of course, I do believe that there is like some revenue generation that comes from trademarking. You can license the opportunity. There's some really great, you know, revenue generation there. But I think largely a lot of that is mindset. And it's because you're investing in your business, you're going to show up differently. And I think that that's a big reason to kind of find legal alignment. And I also think taking it one step further, we love boundaries here. We love clarity on expectations. We think that ambiguity can be really costly. And we think that a contract actually is a really wonderful way to set expectations in a way that you and your team work best. And so not how you've always been doing it, but how you would actually work best. What would make you happy? For me, it's a no text policy. It's the fact that we don't work on Fridays. You, you know, occasionally we have emergencies, but I honestly, like I unplug on Thursday afternoon and I don't hop back on my computer until Monday morning. And my clients know that we're very honest that that is, that's how we work but they know that when we're in the office, like we are there, we're like really showing up. And so for me, that legal alignment is so, is like twofold, right? It's giving me the confidence to invest in my business, continue to grow because I feel confident in our foundation, but also I'm growing in a direction that makes me happy as a business owner. That's fulfilling, that is setting boundaries that matter, that allow my team to work best. And I think all of those things together, you know, really impact your day to day. You already touched on this a little bit, Lauren, but you mentioned contracts, but like when might a small business seek legal support for their business? Yeah. You know, it really depends. I will say when it comes to trademarking, I'm currently in the process of like a really fun new business idea. Um, And the first thing that I'm doing is doing trademark searches. 
It's nice because I can do it in-house, of course, with my own team. But the first thing I'm doing before I'm literally investing in branding, before I'm investing in our, you know, um, gosh, if I say something, I'm going to give away what it is. But before I invest in anyone else, the first thing I'm doing is actually, you know, outside of like the bells and whistles, I am coming up with the name and I'm ensuring that I can trademark the name because for me that that is so important. And this is the type of business that I see growing and scaling. Maybe it's the type of business that I would exit from, meaning I would sell it, you know, down the road. And I want to be able to ensure that one of the things I can sell is that in the bundle of rights that you, you sell when you sell a business is actually the trademark and the name of the business. I want that to be really strong and set to kind of scale. Um, And so for me, the first thing I'm doing is a comprehensive trademark search, which our team does as part of the trademarking process. So oftentimes people come to us and they're like, I've had my business name for five years and, you know, I want to trademark it. It doesn't always mean it's something that can be trademarked. Unfortunately, I've seen the sad cases where I have a friend that has, you know, a business that's, it's called descriptive. It's basically like the name is, you can pretty much tell what it is from the name, right? Without going into details, you can't trademark names like that. And she went to a lawyer and she said, I want to trademark my business name. And they were like, great. She was like, I felt like she got a good deal. Well, the person should have said, you can't trademark that. Like she should have been so clear with her upfront, but I don't know if she just doesn't know trademark as well as she's representing to her clients, or if, you know, in fact, she just wanted to take the money. I really don't know. And the problem with that is like, you have had to invest a lot of money into branding and goodwill and developing your business over time. And if you can't trademark it, it can be really detrimental to your growth and maybe an eventual exit. So it's so funny. I, I, you know, it's not the thing that people think about. It's the first thing we're searching, right? Our business name, we're like, oh, this would be catchy. How should I spell it? Is the domain, is the domain available? What about the Instagram handle? But we often don't go one step further. So a really easy way for your listeners to get a little bit more peace of mind outside of actually investing in a comprehensive trademark search where we look at business listing, blog titles. I mean, we do like a very deep dive with software. Um, The first place I would start, of course, Google, great place to start. See who else is in your space. You're looking for someone who's in your industry. So for example, two business names, one's a plumber, one's a bakery. That's okay. You could, that's, that's fine. Um, Because no one's probably going to confuse the two. The industries are distinctly different. So I want you to do a Google search. Look for people who have similar names in your industry. The legal standard is confusingly similar. So sounds the same spelled relatively the same, parts of the same phrase, kind of look for the variations like that. Start on Google and then go to the USPTO.gov website and search similar phrases. So don't just search just the business name. Search common misspellings, plural, um, you know, kind of just a few variations like I was talking about that would kind of cover confusingly similar and see what the search results are in your industry. And that's going to hopefully give you a little bit of peace of mind. And if you're not launching a new business idea, but you have a business that you haven't trademarked yet, I would encourage you give yourself some grace, go do the search now, because I always like to say it's better to have the opportunity to proactively make changes or, or find ways to strengthen your rights than it is when you get a cease and desist letter. Because of course we've been on the other side of those phone calls and it's not a fun phone call. Um, so those are super self-help ways 
to get a little bit more peace of mind in what I think is one of the most crucial steps, which is your branding, your name, because that's how people tell you apart from everybody else. And so that is a very fundamental step. When it comes to contracts, I want you to know how you would operate best before you have a contract. But I do want you to come to me before you have clients because there is liabilities that you're probably not thinking of. There's really clear expectations that you can set. So before you launch that new product offering, maybe once you've refined, I like to kind of say like, once you've made your sales page, then reach out to a lawyer because your contract really shouldn't overpromise anything more than what you're putting on your sales page. That should be the how, the what, the when. It should answer all of those questions on the expectations and the contract should support that. So that would be a really great place to start. When you know what the bells and whistles are and you know how your team would work best to support those, that's when you could talk to a lawyer and you would get the best contract. It's really hard to come to a, a lawyer and say, okay, I'm a, an event planner. Okay, great. How do you want to collect payment? I don't know. Um, when do you, you know, what are you, what are you going to include in your deliverables? Oh, I'm not sure. You don't, like, we can't help you there. There's going to be so many blanks and I want you to get the best bang for your buck because ultimately a service contract in the event space is probably going to be one of your most used tools and you're going to use it over and over and over again. And so a good contract is going to be something that you will have for years to come that maybe only occasionally you go, oh, you know what? That didn't work out very well. Our team's going to do things differently or maybe a little process change. Then you can make like small tweaks, which I kind of like to say, like keep your service agreement like a living document. Know that it's going to change and evolve with your business. But you, the fundamentals, the baseline, most of it should continue to live on. So it's a really worthy investment. So Lauren, what would you say if you were on a podcast that hadn't trademarked their podcast name? Um, <laughs> um, I would say... <laughs> asking for a friend, you know. Yeah, asking for a friend. Blast, Logan. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, um, that's funny. So I would say you're like a lot of people. Give yourself grace. Don't beat yourself up about it. But I will also tell you, funny story. I'm going to be totally honest. My first name of my podcast was, in fact, legally aligned because I was obsessed with the name. It was a 2020 like passion project. It was before I had in-house like an attorney that specialized in trademark that could easily run the trademark for me. Um, I didn't do a very good job. And I registered the trademark. I actually had a friend of mine register the trademark who I, you know, I feel like could have advised me a little better. I'm very picky on how we advise our clients because I've seen it gone wrong a few times. Um, and I got back an office action, which is like the nice way of the USPTO being like, here's all the problems with us registering your trademark. And it was like, yeah, you're confusingly similar to... And I can't remember off the top of my head exactly how close it was, but it was close enough. And of course, because I'm in the legal industry, it was a, a like a law firm conglomerate, mm. like in the industry, like in the insurance space that had a trademark for something, not the exact, like, like I was telling you, not an exact hit, but something very similar. And I was like, Oh my God, am I really going to try to fight this? Like try to get permission from them. Am I going to try to, it, I was like, Nope. So I had to drop the branding of my podcast 
And now that's, it's right now it's the Lauren Boyd show, but we're currently going through a rebrand to better align it with our firm and some of the things we have coming up. So speaking from experience, (laughs) messy action can sometimes cost you a little bit of um, time and money in some cleanup. So here's what I would do first. Go to the USPTO.gov website, search your podcast name and things that feel similar and see what you're coming up with. See if you have any fears. Of course, our team is always here to help you out, but the easy approach is first do some due diligence on your end, see what you're seeing coming up. And I would suggest, because I mean, we have to think about our business brand and how people see us as like a core element of our business. It's one of the most fundamental elements of our business. If Nike couldn't protect their name, you know, how would they stand out? If the swish could be used by everybody, how would they stand out? Those items are actually very delicate. And and oftentimes we're more worried about the domain name than we are about the registered trademark. But here's the, the funny thing. If you have a registered trademark and someone else is using your Instagram handle of your registered trademark, you can take it back. There's actually tangible benefits in addition to suing, preventing people from in your same space, being confusingly similar. We are more worried often about getting the Instagram handle. (laughs) So I understand where you're coming from. It's happened to me. Um, and I went through the process of having to clean it up because I'm the super messy action literally decided overnight. I'm going to, was going to launch a podcast during COVID ordered a mic. I had to go pick it up from Best Buy when they were only letting like two people into the building at a time <laughs> in a mask. It was like a whole thing. And now that's not the name of my podcast anymore because I literally did it overnight and was like so excited. Oh, well, you know what? That was a wonderful, wonderful evolution of my podcast. Um, but I'm really hopeful for you guys. So let's, we'll play, we're pretending like there's no doom and gloom. We're going to be super hopeful and you're going to take the next steps because when you see this as a fundamental part of what you offer to the, to the community, you need to trademark not only your main product and service, but I would also encourage you to do some of the fundamental kind of pieces that round out you know, um, kind of the community that you're building. So oftentimes people, you know, don't put an emphasis on like merchandise. For example, Sophia Amoruso, the founder of Girlboss said that her biggest mistake in business was being too lenient when she got some opposition on the Girlboss registered mark. And she actually agreed to get rid of merchandise. And she looks back on it and she feels that, that the legal arguments that she could have, A, she could have defended it and said, no, I don't need to give anything away. But she, the amount she settled it for was far too low because the ability for her to monetize the, the merchandise around Girlboss would have been, I mean, we've seen that how many places, would have been a huge amount of money. And so we often sometimes don't appreciate the true value of having exclusivity in a space. So I'll get off my soapbox for trademark, but that's like one of the most basic things that I really would encourage people to do. Now I'm going to tell you, if you are, if I was Lauren Boyd event planning, you cannot trademark that. You don't lose sleep over it. That's okay. If you have a brand name, like literally a brand name, your strongest thing is going to be made up words like Google before Google meant anything or like an Apple, which is called arbitrary. So the first is fanciful. 
arbitrary means like you pick apple, a fruit, that now when you say apple, people probably think of the computers before they think of the fruit. Um, but that's called arbitrary. Those are really strong marks. So if you're in the process of ideation and thinking of a name, come up with things that are like kind of off the cuff. That's going to be your strongest chance of trademarking. And then the next step would be, you know, doing something that kind of evokes that the concept, but isn't merely descriptive. Lauren Boyd event planning would be merely descriptive. So those would be my suggestions to avoid. If that's the name of your business, please don't lose sleep. Just know that like with your name, you have a little bit level of protection because it's the people are trying to work with you and that's what's going to stand out. So don't lose sleep if that's, if that's you. Super helpful. I love all the, like the tangible tips and tricks that you're, you're laying down and it's, I'm making my brain think a lot. And um, two thoughts actually, one was when you were talking about, um, you know, trademarks and if there was a company that is a plumber and a bakery, I think is what you said. And I was like, yeah. I would love to know the title that goes with both of those <laughs> industries. <laughs> Just a side note. Mm. No, I just can't um, stop thinking about that. <laughs> piping. Um, oh, piping yeah, for a okay, cake. Yeah. Piping for a plumber. Now, right, don't ask right. me any more creative questions because that <laughs> is going to be the most creative thing I've said all day. That's actually, yeah, that's super true. Okay. So... <laughs> I'm going to use this as an example going forward, but I didn't intend it to work out this nicely. It worked out great. Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. And then you briefly just started um, talking about contracts earlier. And one of the things that we've seen kind of in the industry that we'd love to hear your thoughts on are like uh, with the pandemic contracts have have changed a lot or have been impacted a lot. One place that I've seen it um, and I have heard a lot of others have as well is not only trying to become stricter in their own contracts, but also when they're booking like a venue, for example, that contract is so much stricter than it was before. And I've heard it's easier for, I don't want to say they're hiding things in the contract, but like a normal person would have a hard time seeing things that are in there. And it's all just because we learned hard lessons and we need to cover our butts more, but that makes all of it much more complicated. So what advice do you have on that situation? So where I would start is of course, like, I mean, we have clients that send us like contracts all the time. Hey, can you take a look at this? Let us know. Having an, a, a good advisor, depending on the size of the contract, you know, and, and the amount of money that's at risk, it may be worth it to involve somebody that, and have someone in your corner that you can send contracts to and say, hey, can you take a look at this? Because we are so used to seeing like there's like legal ease and defined terms and like all of these things that if you didn't have the experience in it, it would be hard to pick up on all the subtleties. And honestly, one of the worst things in contracts is often not what's in there, it's what's not in there. And that's a really hard thing to find as well. But what I would suggest to people is never be afraid to advocate for yourself if something doesn't seem to align to a conversation you had or a way that something was sold to you. So if it's like a slight difference and you're like, well, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, we've already talked about it, so I'm sure it'll be fine just go back to them. There is like no harm in advocating for yourself. Arguably, I think there's a different amount of respect that you'll receive as a business owner. If you go back to them with key things, Hey, I noticed that we talked about, you know, um, there would be a drop-off period ahead for staging. I don't see that in the contract. Can you ensure that that makes it in there? Cause I want to make it clear that we had two hours of setup, you know, like we discussed, can we make sure that gets in there? they're not going to think anything bad because you picked up on that. In fact, they're going to think you are a more responsible business owner. And that's probably a party they would rather work with. 
Now, if you go in and be like, hey, I saw that there's a late payment section in there. Can you strike that? They're probably gonna be like, so do you intend not to pay us? Um, you know, so it's always with the grain of salt. But if you're showing that you're paying attention, it's always a good thing. What I would look for, and this might actually be really helpful. So I know we've talked about, you know, when you should maybe get your own contract in place. That might be a really wonderful tool if you can't hire out someone to do a contract review for you and see how that aligns with the structure of your own agreement. Kind of do some like compare because what I like to remind people is like a lot of these, you know, contractual rights and expectations, think of them like a stream. They kind of flow down and trickle down to other people. So if your service agreement says this, what the rights that you're giving to your client, maybe you're hiring a you you know you're you're contracting with a venue or hiring independent contractors. Those same rights need to flow through consistently. So if you're telling your client, "Oh yeah, we're going to have a two off two hour drop-off window at the venue." Well, you better make sure that two hour drop-off window is in the the venue contract. Or make sure that your independent contractors are going to be available the start of the drop-off time, what, you know, or available for breakdown at the exact time because you know when the breakdown needs to be done by. Just start thinking about how those things flow and connect together. And that might help pick up on, oh, you know what? I remember talking about with my vendor about drop-off. I didn't see that in the venue contract. That might give you some cues as to what might be missing or what might be ambiguous, or maybe it's stated wrong. Maybe it says drop off windows an hour. And you're like, I thought we talked about two hours. Don't be afraid to go back and push back on some of those items. Those are, you know, that's a really easy way to make sure everything really flows together, which is really important. And I know often a big concern these days is cancellation and rescheduling. I would say, you know, have a general policy on what you're willing to bear, you're going to have to, you know, it's always a weight balance of like, what is the risk? How costly is the risk that like, you know, if it's, you know, we have a client that has, um, that does outdoor setups for kids play. Um, and this stuff can't be rained on, but we live in Phoenix, Arizona. It doesn't rain here very often. Um, so the risk of that is very, very low, but she was able to think through, how, you know, if it is going to rain, they need to either have avail availability to bring them, you know, set up inside or they'll have to reschedule. But if they reschedule, they were scheduling for a fee. And what I want you to think about for rescheduling and cancellation is the opportunity cost of your time. Because I think sometimes we, we, we're too willing to be flexible because we're like, oh, well, it would be really terrible if it rained for them on the event date or whatever it might be. But you also have to think about how you've reserved that date and you've prevented it from other people, you know, being booked by other people. And maybe someone else wouldn't have been upset by whatever that particular thing is. Illness, you know, COVID has been a big thing in event space. I think we're moving past that. So making sure that there's clarity around what's included in the rescheduling, what's inc not included. Force majeure is a big word. Make sure all of those things flow together. I've oftentimes seen what's the force majeure clause just kind of be off on its own by itself. And in fact, I really want it to align with your rescheduling fee, like in rescheduling policy, because if it can't happen, well, then it's going to have to be rescheduled you know, and, and make sure that there's some kind of retention of a deposit and, and think about, you know, how those fees align, because there is absolutely an opportunity cost of your time. And it's appropriate for you to share those risks 
with the other parties involved and just make sure you're kind of waiting that out. Yeah, I know the the biggest change that I made to my contracts and just how I talk, like you talk about how it has to align with how you're selling things and how I frame it for clients um, has been avoided. Instead of saying it was a deposit for, you know, their, for their, for the services, it was a retainer and just to take it away from, because in my head, they were both non-refundable, but I, that was something I've seen come up a lot in the event and like with event colleagues where the deposit, when you hear that word, you think, oh, I get my money back if I don't, if we don't do it versus if it's a retainer, but then again, still having very clear terms in your contract of mm -hmm. what percentage you're keeping, like you're saying for that opportunity cost. Yeah. I, I actually err on the side of there is no difference between re retainer and deposit. Like there's no legalese on one's refundable, one is not. Um, but be express and be super express. Like we're obnoxious about it. When something is non-refundable, we say like the blank, the deposit, the whatever, this payment, whatever, you, how you're going to is non-refundable in all caps. And if you want to get crazy, put it in bold. Like there is no reason to hide it. Be very clear. And you just tell people there's an opportunity cost associated with my time and reserving this date in the event that we have to reschedule. There is a potential, you know, there is a hit to my revenue. And so I have to, so, you know, I have to help, you know, I'll share in some of that burden because you're not losing everything. But another thing to consider is when you have a rescheduling or cancellation policy, including they can reschedule one time mm. because you don't want them to just continue to kick the can down the road or make sure that the rescheduling fee is applicable each time and make sure it's always subject to your availability really good things to keep in mind. So opportunity cost, very clear on what's non-refundable, say it, be explicit about it, be obnoxious about it. So they can't say they didn't see that part in the contract. Reiterate those big items in your email drips. I'm a huge fan of canned emails and you can absolutely include like call outs and things that you want to make sure they knew in the emails. Cause then you can say, well, I informed you before you signed the contract or it's on my website and it's here and it's here it's giving you that, that weight to say you had plenty of opportunity to know and you signed the contract. So the fact that you say you didn't know doesn't actually matter. You signed the contract, you probably should have read the contract. Well, and that's when I think it's it's been interesting too, going from uh, like as an event producer, I did a lot of in-person pre-COVID and then it went all virtual. And a lot of my terms and things I used really don't apply when I was doing virtual because I'm doing it for my house and, and different, different role. But then now that we've gone back into hybrid and in-person again, I've had to like revamp everything. But one thing for any listeners that I know has been really helpful for me is like, she's like, Lauren, you mentioned like talking about it as a boundary setting. I don't know why I always thought clock, like contracts kind of made me feel kind of like, you're just trying to like, like you're saying that like fear it's supposed to try, you're trying to like catch someone. And I was like, I don't want my clients to ever feel that way, but it's, if anything, just laying it all out. Like, Hey, if my crew's on site for more than five hours, like we need a hot meal. If you can't provide it, I can get it. But you know, I will be invoicing to that to you afterward. Cause that's just, we, we deserve to feed humans after five hours of working, like, yeah. um, but certain things like that, that I've learned is helpful, at least for me to also reframe it when I'm working with other people on my team, that it's like, I need to advocate for them to be like, Hey, mm -hmm. you know, here are the boundaries or here are the things that I'm setting out for. Um, that's really helped 
me get a little bit more comfortable with having those conversations. Yeah. When I first started, I was like, I didn't want to talk about it at all. Maybe. It's like, I know. <laughs> people feel like contracts are like an interruption to this relationship that you're building. But if you make it feel like it's just the natural next step, you're hopping off of a call and you're like, great. Okay. You're going to see my contract in your inbox. It sets out everything that we talked about today in detail. If you have any questions about it, please don't hesitate to ask. No one's going to think anything of it. The more that they're investing in a visit, in an event and the bigger a business gets, the more they're going to expect. If you didn't send a contract, that would be weird because guess what? On the flip side of you not catching them in anything, they can't hold you to what you're saying you're going to do. So remember, this is a layer of mutual promises, setting out clear expectations is that it doesn't have to be, is that it doesn't have to be fear-based. Instead, it's really a loving like step in the right direction into continuing the relationship. And what I actually really like as a suggestion for your listeners is consider doing what's called an MSA, a master service agreement. It sets out a contract that's actually going to be like the contract, the way you guys work together going forward. And it allows you to instead just layer on statements of work because often in your industry, you're kind of the go-to person for probably multiple events with the same person. And so you're getting really strong terms one time. They don't have to look at the contract anymore. Now going forward, you're just going to layer on statements of work. This works really well too. If, for example, they start with like one scope and then as they're getting closer to the event, they're like, oh, so could you do... X, Y, Z, and you can add in another statement of work without them having to sign a separate contract. And sometimes as they get bigger without having them be tempted to renegotiate the terms so that, you know, you're working with them over here and the payment terms are one way and you're working with them over here and the payment terms are a different way. It's creating alignment across each particular client that you're working with. And you did mention one thing about how you've gone from, you know, in person to virtual to back in person. One thing I love to add into your force majeure clause, anyone who has a force majeure clause in their contract, open it up. And I want you to add a adaptation in format because they're actually, that would cover the going to virtual. So a lot of my clients who had adaptation in format were able to take their live event to virtual very seamlessly because even though they, the deliverable was supposed to be this great you know, event in person, they, because of a force measure event, COVID, aka COVID, um, or maybe the, the venue floods or something crazy happens and you have to take it virtual, you could do an adaptation and format without any disruption and without refunding and canceling the event. And so think about some like little key pieces to add in, but I love that phrase in a force measure clause. That's awesome. There are so many things that I'm learning myself. And so I just appreciate all your specific ideas. Um, and we've run up on our time today, but I wish we could keep going. So w one way that we like to end, if it sounds all right, is we just like to kind of throw some random, we call them sentence finishers at you and you can answer them and they're random. So if that sounds okay, we'll just go that direction. Um, Let's do it. Awesome. So some of them are kind of business related. Some of them aren't. So your favorite quality in a manager is what? Okay. Not a, not a one word. I don't know if I'm supposed to do one word, but I'm going to say someone who's actually been in your shoes before. I think to be a really effective manager, you have to have been willing to do the grunt work yourself. Like you have to know what you're asking people to do in order to lead well. Our next one is uh, my favorite productivity tool is. 
Oh my God. I'm always looking for better productivity tools. Um, I am like such a calendar person and I really do think that that makes me more productive because if it's not in my calendar, it's like dead to me. Um, I, I really think it's really helpful for me to see when not only that, like I have a task, but when I'm going to do a task and it kind of holds me accountable. Like, Oh, I said right now I was going to like set everything else down and I was going to work on this. And I think being able to plan out in that way has made me more productive. Amen to that. (laughs) My last one is something that you're looking forward to this year, whether it's business or personal is. Oh my gosh. Well, business, we're going to be launching a whole new evolution of, you know, that to the, like a sister company that I have tried other things out in the past. Like I've dabbled in like different things and but this is like the idea that I'm just like overly passionate about. I'm like so excited. Um, and then the other, honestly, like I feel like I'm already in my head, like planning my daughter's first birthday. Um, I got a tutu made out of my wedding dress, like the extra tool for my wedding dress. Um, don't tell my husband how much I spent for my tailor to make it. That's a secret <laughs> between us. Um, to my defense, they didn't tell me what it was going to be before I, I bought it. Um, ordering an Amazon tutu would have been way cheaper. Um, but it has so much sentimental meaning. I'm like teasing my husband. Like we're literally kind of doing some of our backyard. And I'm like, I just want it done before her birthday. Like I keep telling him about like the cute white inflatable that we're going to rent for the backyard. And I know which balloon <laughs> vendor we're going to use. And like, I, as a small business attorney here in Phoenix, I am friends with so many incredible vendors and I feel like it's an opportunity for me to showcase so many of my clients that I just adore. And, you know, there, I have a client that does soft play setups and like, I can't wait to have them come do a soft play setup for us. And I know a wonderful balloon vendor. I mean, I'm literally just so excited because I feel like for me, events are an opportunity to tap into some of my incredible clients who've become friends. Um, and I'm just, I'm like, I'm like really excited and it's six months away. <laughs> You're an event planner, Lauren. <laughs> there you go. I hear yeah. it. <laughs> We're all event planners. Well, Lauren, before we let you go, uh, where can listeners find you or find more about you and your services? Really easy. Go check me out on Instagram at the Lauren Boyd. You'll find links to our Instagram page for our business, our website. You can see cute baby pictures. And if you follow along, you'll see her first birthday come to fruition. We can't wait. Can't wait at all. Thank you so much, Lauren. This has been amazing. And we appreciate you taking the time. All right. Thank you so much. I loved being here. Maybe you'll have me back. Yes. We have more to talk about for sure. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And with that, I think it brings us to our bonus tip, which Mary, you have your bonus tip with us this week. Yes. So for the bonus tip, as you know, sometimes the bonus tips are kind of, they're just random event tips. And so this one's super random. So bear with me, but, um, I, this is, I promise this is not at all sponsored. I, but I wanted to share um, about a company that I met and then you all can check them out and see if they're of value to you. We can link into the show notes, but I met with a company called Relay and basically it's a new type of like walkie talkie system. That's like the simplest way to to put it. Um, The one thing that I like about them is they're like lightweight. You carry them around and they have like a GPS on them. So if you lose them, you can find them, which is pretty cool, especially when you have big teams working like an in-person event at a big space. So Feel free to take a look. I have not personally used it or anything like that, but I thought it was intriguing to see innovation with like lucky talkies. (laughs) So check them out. See if you like it.
Love it. Another little in-person tool for any of our event folks listening. Well, that brings us to the end of our episode, friends. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram at Better Events Pod or send us an email at bettereventspod at gmail.com. You can also follow us over on Twitter, also at Better Events Pod. And we appreciate you taking time to listen to us. And we'll be back in your feeds again next Wednesday. 